Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors writing in all genres. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with Michael Wiley, whose new crime novel, Trouble in Mind, is being published by Severn House, the sponsor of today's podcast. Michael, would you mind starting us off by reading a short selection from the book? I'd be more than happy to, Lenny. This is at the very beginning of Trouble in Mind. That January, a month before Sam Kelson took a bullet in the head, word came from a snitch that a kid on the northwest side was selling the best dope in Chicago. High grade, cheap, lines around the block until a cruiser turned the corner and then a magic disappearing act. Kid looked 15, maybe 16. They called him Bicho, Spanish for bug. Bicho because he was little and skinny. Bicho because he scurried into a hole whenever a cop showed. The job went to Kelson, eight years on narcotics, the past five undercover. Kelson always partnered with Greg Toselli. They went through academy together. Their careers paralleled so closely they could, could have held hands while riding down the highway on motorcycles. Not this time, said Darren Malinowski, commander of the narcotics division. Toselli's a hothead. Go it alone. Keep it quiet. See what it is. Why the special deal, Kelson asked. This is a kid. You've got a kid, right? A nine-year-old girl. Mine's 13, Malinowski said. Close enough. You know how it goes. If he looks like someone we can fix, let's take him off the street and put him in a program. You're soft, Kelson said. I like that. What if he can't be fixed? We slam him against a wall and break every bone in his little body. Yeah, you're a marshmallow, Kelson said. A feather pillow, a dish of pudding. You always say what you're thinking, Malinowski said. If I said half of what I was thinking, I'd be divorced, friendless, and after a day or two on the street, dead. Thanks, Michael. Could you let our listeners know a little bit of context about uh, the two characters who've been talking to each other and a little bit about uh, the plot of the book without giving too much away? Sure, I'd be happy to. The, um, the, the first line of that passage that I just read um, you know, introduces the fact that Sam Kelson takes a bullet in the head. Um, this is when he's a police officer on the narcotics squad or n- narcotics division. And it's um, an almost deadly uh, injury. He, um, he survives and he suffers from what the doctors call disinhibition, um, which means that he speaks compulsively. Um, and his version of, of disinhibition means also that he can't help but uh, speak the truth. Um, that puts him in a precarious position as a, as a private investigator. And so um, soon enough, he has somebody coming to visit, wanting to hire him because she thinks that her brother is possibly passing illegal drugs um, as a pharmacist. Um, and of course, once he gets into the, to the heat of the, the investigation, um, he sometimes speaks in good good ways and good times, and sometimes he speaks in ways that put him in danger and and risk the cl- the confidentiality and the interests of the client. So, as you mentioned, the very first line of the book, um, you know, foreshadows what's to come not so long after that. How early in the writing process of this novel did you decide that you were going to open with that line and with that giveaway? 
I started with the with the idea that I wanted to write about somebody who suffered from an injury of the kind that Sam Kelson has, and so I, I knew that I knew that that was going to be my my character. Um, I also I also realized you know very quickly that I needed I, I needed to get get him there, get him to that injury, and get the reader to to that point as well. Um, and it made a lot of sense to me to to start off with, with the the situation in which he gets shot and this is just the first the first chapter in which that happens i like i like starting with a bang i like starting um, with a hook that immediately we recognize that something major is at stake and so the, the the first lines always matter to me you know a great deal and so pretty early in the in the writing process i knew that that was how we were going to start the the story but then i refined it and refined it and refined it to the point that that i knew that we were getting the setup um, and the injury, um, but then immediately moving beyond that in a kind of a flashback. So I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce this. Uh, is it autotopagnosia is the disorder that he suffers from? Um, well, he, he suffers from two disorders. One is disinhibition. Okay. And that's the one that, that leads him to basically it. It's something that, you know, as the name suggests, leads to a, a failure of um, inhibitions. And this is a a real condition. There are historical cases. Um, there's a guy named Phineas Gage, who is maybe the most famous uh, person in, in history who had this. He was a railroad worker 150 years ago who, as they were detonating explosions to clear out some, some stone, um, took a, an iron rod through his head, um, and he survived. You know, Against all odds, he survived. Um, and his personality was changed. He became something of a fighter and apparently not a real nice person to be around. Um, but he survived for quite a while and was able to have regular conversations, reg regular memory. And you know, to this day, we have these kinds of situations. That, that, that's his. That's his main. That's his main um, disability. But he also suffers from autopagnosia, um, which is basically it means um, somebody who is unable to recognize his or her own body. Um, frequently, it's just a limb. And so somebody will look down and, and not recognize that the legs that are attached to the rest of the body are, are their own. In his case, he often has a kind of forgetfulness about what he looks like. And so he's, he's surprising himself. Um, it sounds in some ways more, more dramatic than, than it ends up being in the plot itself. It's mostly that disinhibition that, that leads to interesting circumstances. And I mean, that was a fascinating thing. I mean, I've been reading books in the genre for more decades than I'd like to admit, and I haven't encountered it before, but it seems such a, a logical irony, especially once he leaves the force and becomes a, you know, a private investigator. What gave you the idea to start a series and have a character with these um, disabilities? Right. You know, it's, um, of course, one of the conventions of of this genre or subgenre, one that I deeply love, is that that we have a flawed character, um, and frequently a character who has some kind of flaw that's either of his own making or is imposed upon him from from outside. You know, whether the person you know historically was a heavy drinker or sometimes a, a drug user, um, all the way back to Sherlock Holmes, um, you know, and, and certainly up to the present moment. You know, th this is always something that, that's that's working against a character. Um, it struck me that there would be a really interesting circumstance to have a private eye who is anything but private, um, you know, who, who can't keep private matters to himself. 
and I started thinking about the, the various circumstances in which that might that might be the case. Um, you know, so many private eyes are these smart alecky guys or women who who speak at inopportune times, who put themselves into situations that in real life most of us would be self-censoring. And I'm tempted, you know, I'm I'm often tempted toward toward the funny line. You know, I love the funny line when and when I encounter it elsewhere. But we get into issues of plausibility sometimes is would anybody really say that? Would anybody really do that, you know, when faced with, say, a gun or a violent criminal? And in his case, you know, I realized that this would be something that would be um, inescapable, unavoidable. You know, of course, one can only push it so far. But, you know, I I kind of fell in love with with this as a possibility. And what sort of research did you do to try to did you do, excuse me, to uh, present the disorders as as convincingly as possible? Right. You know, I did extensive, extensive research. You know, I I read you know a good number of of books on the subject, um, read a lot of case studies on the subject, and then also interviewed psychiatrists and psychologists who have worked with people with this condition. And the reality is, as one might expect, it can be a a deeply damaging condition, and it frequently is. It's it's a life changing one. In this case, it is a life changing one. Of course, to to this character, Sam Kelson loses his job with the police off the police force or the police department. Um, he goes through a divorce. Um, but at the same time, th- there's something essential about him that, that remains from before. Um, I like to think of that as being that he's a very lovable figure, somebody who is well-intentioned, somebody who, you know, even before this happened, would probably speak out, as is clear from that opening passage, in ways that perhaps you know, others might might keep their mouths shut. You know, I found I found some really interesting cases um, of, of people who have this disinhibition, and it manifests in in a variety of ways. Frequently involving sexual misbehavior, sometimes involving physical violence. Um, in his case, in his case, it works out that it's largely, not entirely, but largely, it's something that comes out of his mouth. So. If I did my homework carefully enough, this is the second series set in Chicago, which is where you grew up. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. The first series is the Joe Kosmarski series, which came out um, about a decade ago, almost, or in fact, beginning a little bit over a decade ago. Um, and three books came out in that series, um, Last Strip Tease, um, A Bad Kitty Lounge, and A Bad Night's Sleep, Bad Night's Sleep um, being the one that won the Seamus Award, um, all three of them being books that I, you know, I really enjoyed writing as well. So why set another series in Chicago? What, I mean, obviously the, the main character has uh, different things going on, but is there something about Chicago or Chicago, you know, now as opposed to what you were writing the, the prior series uh, that you were looking to express or convey in this book and, and any to follow? You know, I, I have a deep love of a place. Um, I grew up in Chicago, you know, know, know the various places that I wrote about. Um, 20 years ago, um, we moved, my wife and I moved to Jacksonville, Florida. And that, that's where I started writing about Chicago initially. That's where I, I, when I started writing those first three books. After a while, I thought I'd been here long enough. I'd been in the, the Southeast for a long enough time that I also wanted to try writing about this area. The, the place that I write about and the people I'm around, I'm very much influence everything from style 
to plot for me. The, the last four books have sometimes been termed Southern noir, and I, you know, I think of people like James Lee Burke and, and, and a variety of figures like that who, who are also writing in, in this kind of a this, this kind of a mode. And it's slower, you know, it's very atmospheric. Um, you can feel the humidity if, if it's done right. And, and you know, honestly, I needed a breath of fresh air. Um, you know, I, I love I love the southeast. I love where I've been living. I love writing about this place. Um, but I've been missing the cold. You know, these these long hot summers, and I wanted to get back into Chicago. Um, there, there's a kind of a ironic style, an ironic approach, um, a kind of a brusqueness, and um, and I'll even go further to a, a kind of a cold violence that that happens. Um, you know, in a place like Chicago, as I remember it, and as I see it when I visit. Um, in, in ways that one doesn't find so much in the town where I live now, where it's slower and more, maybe a little bit more insidious. It creeps up on you. And so, I mean, I get the difference between a Chicago and a Jacksonville, but in what ways, because I know you've, you've written about the importance of geography generally and, and, and the setting and, and getting all of that right. In what way would this series have differed if it were set in Philadelphia or Boston or Detroit, you know, if we're keeping the same premise of, of you know, who the lead lead character is? Sure, sure. You know, um, you know, w- without knowing, without knowing, say, Philadelphia um, as well as I do or Boston as well as I do, Chicago, some of the some of the differences um, that have always been important to me are the way that Chicago in some ways like like these other cities but but in very very clear ways is for one thing it's a it's a city of neighborhoods um and very often ethnic neighborhoods and so you know there are places that one goes you know and and very much it's almost kind of change you know there are defining lines and one's going into virtually a different kind of a culture it's also a city that along with some of the cities for example the one where i live now um has a deeply you know divisive past um, in terms of racism, um, and one of the main characters in this in this series is a guy named Demarcus Rodman. And Demarcus Rodman, um, you know, he, without going too far into the plot, um, has suffered greatly because of of the racist policies of of the police department, of city politics, um, and so there's that. It's also a city that really has a rich and wonderful, and also frequently ugly. Um, background in terms of you know property rights, who owns what. Um, there's there's a great book by Beryl Satter called Family Family Properties, I think it's called, um, that that talks about the way that you know th- th- there have been different interest groups that have managed and manipulated property ownership for for many many years. So that's all background. You know everything is driven by plot, but but this is all part of part of those characters and part of who they are and why they're there. What surprised you the most after you finished the book? After I finished the book, um, you know, I, I started into this book thinking that this would be a cool idea. You know, I, I loved the idea of writing about a character um, who suffered from disinhibition um, and finally sometimes gains because of the, the condition as well. It, it moves him forward. And and I, I didn't know if if this kind of a character would have legs to go beyond, say, a single story. But um, as I finished it, I realized that that I, you know, I was eager to put him into other circumstances um, in which he would he would again face face hardships and also work his way through family relationships. Um, and so I, I immediately started writing a second one and then a third one. And so 
Um, you know, I'm, I, I see him going forward in really interesting ways, and and his his personal life continuing to develop. And so, you know, I, I guess one of the big surprises with this, and it happens with with the books that I've enjoyed writing most, is is this kind of falling in love with 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 a character that I'm, you know, just introducing myself to um, in the first pages. And was it easier or harder than your prior books? Harder, harder. You know, here's here's the thing that I think one faces with, with somebody like this is, number one, how does one write a character who finally, you know, has suffered from a traumatic brain injury without turning it either maudlin or, you know, all about crying or something like that, and yet without say, writing him in a way that, that might come across as if one is making fun of him. You know, I, I see him as a richly complex human like everybody I know. So there's that. And so, you know, figuring out how to navigate lines with him as a character um, was, was kind of a tricky, you know, and also taking into account all the necessities of the mystery genre of, of PI in general or in specific. The other thing is that a great deal of what goes through our heads. Um, thank goodness we self-censor, right? Um, you know, the, the things that we would never say and shouldn't say, um, the things that, that may or may not be things that, that we have any belief in at all, but maybe pop in as part of the range of the ways that our, our brains play with, with various ideas. Having him deal with with women, you know, and, and he's, you know, he's definitely interested. He's newly divorced and, and interested in, in the possibility of romance. Um, how does he speak to people in ways that, that don't, that, that don't fall into kind of dangerous territory that they shouldn't go into in a city like Chicago, where he's dealing with people who maybe he's never encountered before, you know, what, what does he observe and what doesn't he observe and what does he say? Um, that, 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 for me, that, that was a tricky line. I had to figure out, you know, how, how do I, how do I keep him sympathetic at the same time that I keep him saying more or less whatever he's thinking? You know, sometimes those things are at odds with each other. And could you just sort of talk briefly about what appeals to you personally about uh, PI fiction? Yeah, it's, um, you know, th- th- this this is in many ways my first my first love. You know, I, I grew up reading as much as I I could of it, and when I read Raymond Chandler and Robert Crace, some of his early Elvis Cole stories, um, as an adult, you know, th- this was something that I knew that I I wanted to try as well. You know, I, I love it for many reasons. Um, I, I guess you know the the primary ones are that one can establish a voice that that's engaging, that's funny, that is outside of the norms of behavior. And we can do that both because it's a role that somebody who's not, say, answerable to hierarchies the way that, say, a homicide detective might be, you know, that, that, that that's the, what we get with a PI. And, and also somebody who is not necessarily going to operate according to the same say, institutional and legal codes that, that we so often see in, say, a police procedural um, or, or any other kind of a, a crime story. You know, I, I like the possibility of somebody making wrong choices that feel right and sometimes making what institutionally would be right choices um, that, that feel wrong. You know, I, I like that possibility of, of exploring all of those things. You know, and, you know, finally, I guess we'd have to call them more amateur sleuths. But, but you know, I think of this kind of a character being something that's, you know, embedded in some of the oldest and, and best stories, you know, all the way back to Hamlet, all the way back to 
say the story of Orestes, you know, these kinds of figures who are trying to solve injustices and they're not always doing the right thing, but, but they somehow accomplish something that, that resembles justice. And, and one final question, Michael, I understand that in addition to being an author, you've also been a book reviewer, are a book reviewer, and you also teach literature. Can you just talk a little bit about what book reviewing and teaching literature at the university level has, how have that influenced the way you write your novels? Yes. Um, among other things, what, what, what it's done for me is I, I, I've become you know, as part of the process become, you know, an increasingly close reader. You know, it, it's it, one of the cliches that that we hear, and, and I, I believe in it deeply, is that you can't be a good writer unless you're a good reader. And so as somebody who teaches both creative writing and literature, um, and, and really most of my classes I teach are literature, as somebody who reads other books, other people's books, and and writes about them, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware, you know, I, I pay close attention to, to process. I pay attention to, you know, the various ways that, that one can accomplish amazing, amazing effects through characterization, through setting, um, through plot development. Um, and even in the, in the best of the books, you know, I, you know, I like to believe that, that there's no such thing as a perfect book. If there were, you know, maybe we wouldn't need to keep on trying to write it. Um, and so I, I like to I like to see the places that even the best of the writers sometimes do something that I would do maybe I, I might do differently. Um, and so all of that contributes to me as a writer, and also all the writing I do I think finally you know maybe makes me a better teacher. Well, thank you for your time today, Michael, and thank you, audience, for listening. The book again is Michael Wiley's Trouble in Mind from Severn House. Please join us again soon for the next Litcast.